Chapters six and seven of One Life, One Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Six, Daisy's Diary. I sometimes think Mother hardly makes enough of Uncle Ambrose or of his goodness to me. I know she is grateful to him and proud of my progress, which is all his work. But now and then it seems to me that she keeps him too much at a distance instead of treating him as if he were her brother and really my uncle she very seldom comes into the morning-room while i am at my studies there and there are many days when he leaves the house at one o'clock without having seen her once in a way she asks him to stop to lunch and when she does i can see his pale fair face light up suddenly with a flush of pleasure and he is full of life and talk at luncheon he who is generally so calm and placid like deep water and after lunch he lingers and lingers in the garden or in the drawing-room till mother is obliged to ask him to stay to tea and after tea he goes away slowly and reluctantly lingering to the very last and lingering at the gate if it is fine weather and mother and i go out with him to say good-bye he is so fond of us both it is the little gate in the fence near his cottage at which we say good-bye to uncle ambrose not the gate by which father went out that summer morning never to come back to us again that which was brought back nearly a week afterwards was not my father that which lies under the grave that mother and i keep bright with flowers is not my father we know that he is living still somewhere living or waiting in a placid sleep for the awakening to the new life we know not how we know not where but we believe that he is living still and that we shall see him again as i grow older and my education goes on and absorbs more of my master's valuable time i wonder all the more at the sacrifice which he makes and has been making so long for my sake when i think that he is a man whose books are valued and praised by the greatest thinkers of his age a man who might win distinction in almost any walk of literature i am amazed at his willingness to waste so great a part of his life upon my insignificance it is all the more wonderful perhaps because although when he came to live at lamford he was a poor man he is now a very rich man a distant relation having died in america some years ago and left him a large fortune i hardly know when the change in his circumstances arose he himself made so light of the matter it was cyril who told me one day that his father was rich did you ever know such a man as my father he said to go on living in that ugly old cottage when he might have had a house in park lane and a country seat into the bargain if he liked i asked if uncle ambrose was really very rich really and really and really i believe answered cyril though he has never condescended to enter into particulars with me but a yankee fellow at oxford told me all about the man who left father his fortune and it was a biggish pile that's the yankee's expression mind you not mine cyril is at christchurch oxford he spent his last long vacation in sweden and norway he has promised me that he will spend the next long or at any rate the earlier part of his time at lamford and that he will take me about in his boat and that i shall help him with his classics i am afraid this is only idle compliment to me but uncle ambrose says i really might be of some use to cyril in reading horace and virgil with him and that i know both those poets better than many undergraduates if i do i have to thank uncle ambrose for my knowledge and most of all for teaching me to love latin poetry instead of to hate latin grammar cyril is sometimes just a little inclined to find fault with his father for living in the small ugly house to which he came in his poverty but he has a very liberal allowance can go where he likes for his vacations and is never denied anything by the most indulgent of fathers he feels that he has no right to complain i am so afraid that other fellows will take it into their heads that my father is a miser 
he said one day when they find out that i have no home to which i can invite them and that my father mopes away his life in a cottage by the thames and the worst part of the business is that most fellows in the university know every yard of ground between henley and oxford and must know lamford i told him that a man could not be said to mope away his life when he has written two books which had been read and praised all over the civilized world well no doubt with some men the books account for something and they put my father down as an eccentric scholar living his own retired life for his own pleasure but you see there are more fools than sensible people in the world and the fools must think my father is too fond of money to spend it like a gentleman i dare say they fancy that his wealth came to him too late in life and that poverty's penurious habits had got burnt into his very nature what does it matter what mistakes people of that kind make about your father i said we know that he is a gentleman in every act and thought of his life and that if he does not spend money upon things that please other people it is only because he cares for higher things which don't cost money or make a great show you are right there daisy answered cyril and there are some things he cares for which don't make a show and do cost money his books for instance there are two or three thousand pounds sunk in his library rare books old books new books oriental books lining the walls of every room in the cottage upon my word now i can scarcely take my bath of a morning without splashing a tall copy of the father's and yet i can't get him to make up his mind to build a house to hold his treasures perhaps when the last inch of wall space is filled he will begin to think about the change of quarters cyril is not like his father he takes after his mother's family i am told he has not his father's fair skin and blue eyes or his father's pale and silky hair or his father's high and thoughtful brow his eyes are dark grey his hair is dark brown his features are smaller and sharper than his father's a keen clever face i have heard people call it not the face of a thinker and a dreamer like uncle ambrose some call cyril handsome and some do not he has a very kind and bright expression and is always very good to me he is tall and straight and tremendously active a first-rate oarsman and i am told a good shot he is very fond of radnorshire and his mother's people and i think he likes mother and me though we do not see him very often he laughs at my education and says that father would have made me a blue stocking if nature had not insisted upon making me something else i wonder what that something else is father's grave is in the churchyard at the other end of the village such a pretty picturesque sleeping-place for the beloved dead there is one corner of the churchyard which is separated from the river only by a strip of wasteland covered with rushes and by a low stone wall clothed with mosses and lichens grey and gold and green a dear old wall with fine small-leaved ivy creeping over it here and there and with fairy-like spleenwort growing out of the interstices of the stone just in the angle of the wall nearest the river lies my father's grave under the shadow of a great willow like my tree on the lawn it was because of that tree my mother chose the spot father had always talked of the big weeping willow as daisy's tree and mother knew that he was fond of it for his little daughter's sake so he lies under daisy's tree and his only monument is a low red granite cross with his name and the date of his birth and death no text no verse nothing to say how much he was beloved only a blank space for mother's name when she is laid beside him all the rest is garden mother thinks the garden tells best of our love for him who lies there because it is a changeful living thing and not dead and immutable like letters carved in marble mother and i do all the work of this little garden with our own hands 
no one else is allowed to touch it and the flowers change with every change of the seasons from christmas roses to the pure whiteness of the chrysanthemums in the late autumn and our garden is always lovely and full of freshness and perfume fair weather or foul one of us goes there every day we never miss a day while we are at lamford when we are away the garden is left to itself and when we come back we have to make up for an interval of neglect we had rather there should be neglect and decay for a little while than that hireling hands should cultivate father's garden that corner by the river is very lonely the most remote from the church and the vicarage and the path by which people go to church i have sat there for hours and no one has ever come near me though i have heard the boats going by and people talking as they rode past the little rushy waste outside the wall nobody can see me from the river when i am sitting there for father's tree makes a great green tent just as my tree does on the lawn at home sometimes i hold the soft drooping greenery apart and peep out at the boats going by in the sunlight while i sit in cool shadow many and many an afternoon have i spent here with my books and my scotch deerhound roderick dhu more solitary more secure from interruption than if i had been at home where any one of the few friends with whom we are intimate might drop in upon me in the churchyard i have my life all to myself to read or to think and i prophesy that a great deal of this diary will be scribbled on the grassy bank under the low wall by my father's grave there is a little hollow nook all among the ivy and bramble and fern which is my own particular seat and i can study there better than anywhere else one day beatrice reardon came and found me out in my nook came sailing up to me in her bouncing noisy way flourishing her racket so i found you at last dee she said she is one of those girls who can never call anything by its right name and she frequently calls me dee simeon told me you were out for the whole afternoon but i thought i should unearth you come and make up a set now you have found me perhaps you'll be kind enough to lose me again i answered i should have thought that even you would understand that when i come to sit by my father's grave i like to be alone and i don't like tennis rackets i don't often lose my temper but i do think beatrice reardon though no doubt she means well is a girl who would have exasperated job there are times when i feel that a continuance of beatrice's society would be worse than boils you're a morbid disagreeable little d she said and you'll find out you're mistaken before you're thirty for by that time your moping solitary cross-grained ways will make you look forty and then you'll be sorry she marched off with her racket on her shoulders singing gather your roses while ye may in her loud mezzo-soprano voice the voice of lamford and two villages beyond and i am happy to say she never invaded my peaceful corner again here i read the sixth book of the aeneid and here i read dante until i felt as if i were more familiar with the world of shadows than the world of realities here i learnt those odes which uncle ambrose chose for me in my little horace and my favourite bits from the georgies and my favourite eclogues here i read milton and shakespeare the spot is full of lovely images and haunting fancies we have very few friends though mother is obliged to be civil to a good many acquaintances scattered about the happy river between henley bridge and caversham weir she visits very little only in the quietest way at the houses of her oldest friends the people she knew best in my father's time the only families of whom we see much are the rectors and the doctors for mother's charities bring her in contact with both 
and as there are girls in both families i have been invited very often to play tennis or to join in water picnics or any other homely festivities i have never gone to parties at either house since i was a child and the girls laugh at me for my solitary bringing up but mother and i have been too happy in our own quiet way for me to think that i lose much in staying away from the reardon's birthday dances and hobbled ahoy parties out of doors and in not a hundred miles from lamford there is a big red house by the river called templemead which once belonged to a noble family and which is now occupied by mr copeland who coaches young men for the army some of the young men are the sons of noble families and many of them are rich and i'm afraid i must say that most of them behave badly the rector says animal spirits i say bad manners the rector says that as i have never had a brother i don't understand young men's ways and certainly judging by cyril's account of the goings-on at christ church young men must be extraordinary creatures with the oddest ideas of pleasure cyril says that if mr reardon had not three daughters to marry he would not be quite so charitable in his opinion of mr copeland's young men but i don't think our dear old rector is a contriving sort of person and i don't think one ought to be too hard upon mrs reardon for giving so many tennis parties and cinderella dances and blind man's buff parties and water picnics for three daughters to marry must mean hard work for any mother mrs tyso the doctor's wife has two sons and only one daughter so there is not nearly so much excuse for her and i must say she does make rather too much of those unmannerly hobbledehoys from templemead nor can i conceal from my dear diary that laura tyso's conversation would be more entertaining if it were not all about mr copeland's young men i am afraid my diary is going to develop all the worst propensities in my nature above all the propensity for thinking too much of myself and looking down upon other people a diary is such a safe confidant and it is such a comfort to know one can say just what one likes without any fear of having one silly babble babbled about and made sillier by one's dearest friend so dear diary i mean to scribble just what i like in your nice smooth white pages and when my foolishness has all run off in pen and ink i have only to turn the key in your neat little brass lever lock and my secrets are as safe as if they were shut up in the heart of the biggest pyramid seven she answered stay seven years robert hatrell had been lying in his grave seven years and a day and ambrose arden was slowly pacing the river terrace which the dead man planned in the pride of his heart while his murderer was lying in wait for him somewhere in the big city yonder far away to the east where the bright blue sky changed to a dull and heavy grey ambrose arden and clara hatrell were walking side by side upon the broad gravel terrace between the two rows of cypresses she with a slow and listless step he suiting his pace to hers but by no means listless intent rather watching every change in the pensive face every shade upon the fair forehead seven years and a day had he been lying in his grave seven years and seven days had gone by since he was found stark and cold in a two-pair back bedroom in a shabby lodging-house near st giles church a wonder and a mystery to all england for seven years his widow had mourned him missing him and regretting him every day of her life albeit calmly content in her quiet lot with the daughter she adored brooding over the tragedy of his death brooding over the cruel destiny which had sundered so perfect a union her sorrow was in no wise diminished by the years that had come and gone her memory of the beloved dead was no less vivid than it was before the first flowers had bloomed upon his grave he was still in her mind the one loved and lovable of men 
her first and her only lover time had brought calmness and resignation but time had not weakened love ambrose arden walking by her side in the sultry stillness of the july afternoon knew her heart almost as well as she knew it herself seven years had made little alteration externally in robert hatrell's widow or in robert hatrell's friend at six-and-thirty clara hatrell was still a beautiful woman so much the lovelier perhaps in her calm maturity for the seclusion and repose of her widowhood the cares and excitements of the woman of society had not written premature wrinkles on the broad white brow the disappointments and vexations of the fashionable world had not drawn down the corners of the mobile mouth or pinched the perfect oval of the cheek ambrose arden was exactly the man he had been seven years before fair-complexioned dreamy-eyed with the scholar's bent shoulders and with the scholar's measured accents a remarkable-looking man always and a fine-looking man in spite of those stooping shoulders and the slow meditative walk a man to attract the admiration and the love of women as being different from his fellow-men and with something of that power which women call magnetic in his thoughtful eyes so blue so clear with the colour and transparence of childhood yet with such an unfathomable depth of thought seven years and in all that length of months and weeks and days he had been this woman's slave and she knew it not day and night waking or sleeping near or far he had adored her and she knew it not seven years since her husband's death and how many years before only since the hour he first looked upon her when it had been to him as if the heart within him a strong and passionate heart whose forces he had never known till that moment leaped suddenly into life and linked his fate with hers for ever he had married a fair young wife and he had been a good and tender husband he had truly and tenderly mourned the early dead but till he met clara hatrell he knew not what passion meant he knew not and could never hope to know what it was that made this woman different from all other women upon earth the one supreme mistress of his life whom to serve was destiny whom to love was a necessity of his being and so for seven years and more before her husband's death and for seven years after he had been her idolater and slave she nothing knowing accepting his quiet attentions as calmly as she took a basket of hothouse flowers from her gardener asking no questions of her own heart or of his thinking of him only as an amiable eccentric who lived at her gates because it was his fancy so to live who gave one-third of his life to the tuition of her child because it was his whim so to waste himself her kindnesses to him had been of the slightest for in her widowed loneliness it had behoved her to keep even so old a friend somewhat aloof lest the little world of lamford should begin to have ideas and speculations about her and her daughter's teacher she had kept her life completely apart from the life of pupil and master and had on rarest occasions offered hospitality to the man to whom she owed so much to his son she had been more frankly kind treating him almost as a son of the house and letting him feel that he was always welcome even to cyril's college friends her house had been open and he had in no wise stretched his privileges though there were occasions upon which he was glad to take a boating friend to river lawn rather than to his own cottage home with its shabby furniture and atmosphere of overmuch learning thus had he worshipped her faithfully and silently for fourteen years just the length of jacob's servitude for rachel and she was still afar off cold as marble unresponsive unconscious of his love it was a hard thing to have been so patient and to have waited so long and to be no nearer the goal 
to feel the golden years of manhood slipping away like those faded lilies yonder drifting with the current flowers which some careless hand had plucked and flung away it was hard it was more difficult to be patient now when he felt the glory and strength of life beginning to wane was he to be an old man before he dared ask for his guerdon he who had done so much to win his beloved who had sacrificed for her sake all that other men care for to-day his heart was throbbing with a new vehemence and there was a fire in his thoughts that must needs burst into a blaze before long everything in life has its limits even the patience of a man who loves as ambrose arden loved daisy grows prettier and more womanly every day he said after a contemplative silence of some minutes you must not waste her life as you have wasted your own since your bereavement i conclude that you intend to go into society next season if only for her sake i have been thinking about it clara answered quietly and i suppose it must be so poor child she has seen very little of the world but we have been so happy together so completely united that i do not think my daisy will ever regret her solitary girlhood however everything must come to an end with a faint sigh so i have asked my sister emily to look out for a furnished house at the west end in wilton crescent or somewhere about there and if she can find one that daisy and i like i shall take it next january you must come and see us in our new home she added smiling at him with her calm and friendly smile i should seem like a fish out of water among smart people you might feel bored by their frivolity but the smart people would be very glad to know you they must all have heard of your books heard of them yes read them no i fancy there are not many smart people who care for the makers of books only the intellectual few the stars of the smart world who have found time to cultivate their minds as well as to shine in society cyril will come to us often i hope she said cordially i shall have to give parties and i must have a day for callers it will all be very dreadful this time her sigh was deep and long why dreadful he asked you who are still young still beautiful and rich enough to indulge your caprices are not a woman to shrink from society am i not oh mr arden how can you be so short-sighted do you think it would be no ordeal to me to face strangers do you forget that i am the widow of a man who was cruelly and mysteriously murdered and whose murder set all england talking and wondering i shrink with horror from the thought of going into society knowing that people will whisper about me and point me out to each other in every room i enter but that isn't the worst daisy will hear daisy will be told the dreadful history we have kept hidden from her here people are kind and considerate and they have respected her feelings but in london it will be different true she cannot be so fenced round and protected in society as she has been among your few intimate friends here answered arden thoughtfully but seven years are a long time dynasties are forgotten within a lesser period look at france for instance and see how little trace is left of a fallen empire and a suicidal war to pass to las to cas that tragedy which made so deep a mark in your life is forgotten by the world at large i do not think you need fear any annoyance either for yourself or daisy but there is one way by which you could put a barrier between the present and the past if you would but take that way 
his pale face flushed as he drew nearer to her his eyes lighted with a sudden fire as he laid his long white hand upon her shoulder stopping her almost imperiously looking down at her with a resoluteness that gave to his face something of the eagle look which belongs to conquering natures what way she faltered perplexed by that sudden change in a familiar face take my name instead of yours let robert hatrell's widow vanish in ambrose arden's wife clara i cannot be eloquent where all i value on earth is at stake i love you i have loved you ever since no i dare not say how long only remember that i have never offended you by one whisper of my consuming love i have waited 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 until it seems to me that my life is like the children of israel's pilgrimage through the desert so long so weary so far from the promised land let me not be like their leader let me not die with the haven of my hope seen dimly in unattainable distance i have been patient have i not i have never offended you clara offended me no you have been a kind and devoted friend she answered quickly but i never thought you wanted to be more than a friend nothing was further from my thoughts nothing she went on in an embarrassed manner and then with a sudden transition to warmest feeling she exclaimed you know how i loved him you know how dear his image is to me it would be treason to care for any one else it would be cowardice to take another name i am the widow of robert hatrell of him whom some devil murdered marry again call myself by another name why to be true to the past i ought to give up all my future life to one continuous endeavour to bring his murderer to justice my dearest in plays and in novels murderers are brought to the scaffold by devoted women like you after any interval the novelist or dramatist may find convenient but in real life there is only one kind of machinery that works and that is the much abused police when the police stimulated by the offer of a large reward cannot find a criminal within seven years from the date of the crime you may be sure the criminal is safe the odds are that the murderer who is not caught within a week has saved his neck in the case of my lamented friend the assassin was a man of peculiar audacity prompt resolute unflinching and there is strong reason to believe that the murder in denmark street was not his first crime not his first cried clara hatrell with a sudden vehemence which startled her lover then it will not be his last crime and he will be caught sooner or later like the man in vienna the other day the man in vienna was a professional murderer who had been trapped like a wild beast after a series of crimes when trapped condemned and assured that his case was hopeless he made a full confession of his guilty deeds gloating over the revolting details proud of having struck horror to the hearts of his fellow-men he will be caught some day said clara hatrell just as that austrian was caught red-handed and he will confess his catalogue of crimes the scholar was silent for a few moments and then answered quietly such cases as those are rare but as you say the murderer may confess some day clara it is time you drew a veil over that dark and cruel past it is time you took pity on the man who loves you oh my beloved i have no words to tell my love i have given you years of my life when other men give words i have waited seven years and now i feel that i have spoken too soon there was a marble bench near the spot where they were standing 
an antique seat which had been brought from rome to adore mrs hatwell's garden ambrose arden staggered a few paces forward and flung himself upon this bench and there with his face hidden in his hands sobbed out his passion with sobs which shook his powerful frame and swelled the veins upon his clasped hands that agony of grief touched clara hatrell with sudden pity he had been so good and true and it was love devoted love for her which had chained him to the dull monotony of a life that was a puzzle to the people who knew his talent and his means it was for her he had sacrificed himself for her sake he had educated her child as never child was educated before and he had been her husband's trusted friend and adviser her husband's better sense what more faithful friend what wiser counsellor and guide would she choose for herself in the labyrinth of life what should she say to him was she to bid him wait and hope or to tell him plainly that she could never be his wife she had vowed no vow to remain single all her life for it had seemed to her in her fond regret that a second marriage for her was of all things upon this earth the least possible there had been no spoken promise to her child but daisy had taken it for granted that her mother would be constant to the dead until death reunited the broken bond until she should lie down by his side his true wife in the grave pity and gratitude moved her profoundly at sight of ambrose arden's agony he fought against his weakness as a strong man fights his foe until those convulsive sobs came at longer intervals and the powerful shoulders ceased to heave at last with a final struggle he dashed the tears from his eyes rose from the bench and stood before her calm and still but disfigured by the vermilion stain upon his eyelids and the deathly pallor of cheek and lip forgive me for having made a fool of myself mrs hatrell he said huskily i ought to have known better i ought not to have trusted myself to speak how you must despise me she held out her hand to him with a gentle seriousness despise you she repeated gently can you think me so base as not to be grateful for your patient friendship and for your love but you should not have spoken to me of love you should remember that my heart is buried in my husband's grave yet believe at least that i am not ungrateful let us be friends as we have been in the quiet years that have come and gone since his untimely death no no clara that passive bliss that paradise of the dead is over friendship is too thin a mask for passion i could not go on acting my part after to-day it must be all or nothing she hung her head and the slow tears rolled down her cheeks she did not love him but she felt herself bound to him by a friendship that ought to be lifelong and her heart brimmed over with womanly compassion it must be all or nothing clara he repeated still holding the hand that she had given him in assurance of friendship i must leave you at once and forever or stay with the hope of winning you stay she answered gently he dined at river lawn that evening for the first time since robert hatrell's death a cosy little party of three his pupil pleased to have his company and full of affectionate attentions to him all through the repast complaining of his want of appetite his indifference to certain dishes which cyril liked and which were really worthy of his notice they dined in one of the old cottage rooms a room with a low ceiling an old-fashioned dado and chimney-piece and a bow window the best parlour of the original building the dining-room had been very little used during clara's widowhood they took their coffee in the veranda in front of the drawing-room enjoying the beauty of the night and the newly risen moon shall i play you a little mozart asked daisy 
and without waiting for an answer she left them and seated herself at the grand piano from whence she could see them dimly as they sat in the shadow of the clematis and magnolia which overhung the veranda she was not a brilliant pianist having given only her leisure hours to music but she played with delicacy and expression and as she had been content to devote herself for the most part to one composer she had learnt to interpret his compositions with feeling and understanding mozart is enough for one lifetime she said when her cousins ridiculed her limited repertoire being taught by a master who discovered a new slavonic composer every quarter i never hope to play as well as he ought to be played if i go on working all the days of my life the clever fingers flew over the keys in the light and airy fisher variations the round white wrist moved with easy grace in the passages for crossed hands the player looking straight before her all the time at those two motionless figures between the lamplight and the moon how earnestly he bent over her mother as he talked how still her mother sat with slightly drooping head and how odd that on this one day in seven years her mother should ask him to dinner and allow him to spend the evening in a long tete-a-tete she had kept him at such a distance hitherto that any departure from the old habit seemed strange it was daisy's custom to spend half an hour or so in her mother's room before going to bed these two who lived together always had so much to say to each other that the day seemed insufficient for confidential talk and if the girl happened to be deprived of her nightly tete-a-tete she would complain that she saw nothing of her mother and was altogether hardly used on this particular evening after mr arden had wished them good-night and strolled across to his cottage on the other side of the lane the mother and daughter walked up and down the terrace two or three times in the moonlight before going indoors for good and then the doors were shut and locked and the lamps were put out the river lawn sank into darkness except for five lighted windows on the first floor three of these windows which opened on a wide balcony belonged to mrs hatwell's bedroom and boudoir the other two were daisies and the lamplight shone through artistic terra-cotta muslin curtains which the girl had draped with her own hands the boudoir was one of the prettiest rooms in the house it had been planned and furnished by robert hatrell as an offering to the wife he admired and both clara and her daughter loved it all the more for the sake of the love that had presided over its creation here in the subdued light of a shaded lamp clara sank somewhat wearily into a deep armchair and sat silent while daisy moved about the room looking at the water-colour studies on the wall a surrey lane by burkett foster a girlish head by dobson a street corner in venice by clara montalba or lightly touching the books the dresden china boxes and indian bronzes on the tables in idle restlessness you look tired to-night mother dear she said presently watchful of her mother's troubled face yes dear i am very tired and yet you have not been beyond the gardens to-day it must be the heat that tired you i was so glad you asked uncle ambrose to dinner for once in a way you are not very hospitable to him you know he does not get much attention from you in return for all his goodness to me you know i am grateful to him daisy but you and i living alone together can hardly be expected to entertain gentlemen why mother you surely don't suppose that people would talk if he were to dine here every day what a strange idea uncle ambrose a confirmed old bachelor people are more ready to talk than you would ever suppose daisy mr arden is not an old man not in years but he is old in thoughts and habits he is not like other men no he is not like other men he has deeper feelings than most men come here darling and be quiet if you can you make me nervous while you are moving about and touching things 
i will be a very mouse for tranquillity mother dear cried the girl sinking into a half-sitting half-kneeling position at her mother's feet the mother caressed the dark brown hair tenderly touched the broad forehead above hazel eyes that were like her own eyes that looked wonderingly at her seeing an unwonted trouble in her face daisy would it distress you if if in time to come i were to marry again distress me no mother it would be only natural that you should marry again you are so handsome and so young-looking if you could meet any one good enough for you no i am not such a selfish ungrateful daughter as to be distressed at any change which would make your life happy i should be jealous no doubt horribly jealous after having had you all to myself and i should hate the man i hate him already in anticipation without knowing what he is like or where he is coming from or when he will come but don't be frightened dearest for your sake i should do my best to behave admirably and i would try and school myself to tolerate the she screwed up her lips as if some abusive epithet were on the point of utterance and ended in a loud clear voice with the monosyllable man but what if it were someone you like already someone you love daisy someone i love a man why that could be only one man in the world uncle ambrose exclaimed daisy gazing at her mother with widely opened eyes surprised and half incredulous it is mr arden who urges me to marry him no thought of a second marriage would ever have entered my head but for him uncle ambrose what an absurd idea said daisy slowly uncle ambrose lingering over the name uncle ambrose in love like a young man it seems almost ridiculous girls of seventeen think that hearts are cold and numbed with age at forty said clara hatrell but it is not always so there are attachments that outlast youth yes mother dear i can quite understand that and if it had been the colonel of a cavalry regiment a fine handsome man who had distinguished himself in india with an iron-grey moustache or a politician a man of the world i shouldn't have been a bit surprised to hear that he was madly in love with you but uncle ambrose a man who only lives to read books that other people don't read and brood over questions that other people don't understand i could never imagine such a man as that in love he has talked to me of his wife and of his grief when he lost her but i could hear in his placid way of talking that he had never been in love with her not as rochester was in love with jane or ravenswood with lucy concluded daisy whose examples and pictures of life were all taken from her favourite novels well daisy i was of your opinion yesterday and i too thought mr arden incapable of a romantic attachment but now he has shown me his heart such an unselfish devoted heart a heart which beats only for you and cyril and me he is not happy daisy dear his lonely life is killing him though people think he is a recluse by choice he longs for a fuller life for a home he asked me to marry him after waiting seven years to prove his fidelity to me and his respect for the friend he lost in my dear husband if i refuse we shall see him no more you will lose your kind master and if you say yes he will live with us always exclaimed daisy i have often thought you unkind for turning him out of the house when he evidently longed to stay i have even thought you ungrateful but it would be very grateful of you to marry him you talk as if you would like me to marry him daisy would you really yes i really would for his sake because i think he deserves a good deal more attention than you have ever shown him only there is one thing what is that pet 
i could never call him father i could never speak the word i spoke at the gate that fatal morning when my own dear father bade us good-bye he would be uncle ambrose to the end there was a silence during which the mother sat with downcast eyelids and thoughtful brow perplexed uncertain wavering between two opinions and then daisy began again with a startling suddenness you would be cyril's mother and i should be his sister it would be very nice to have such a clever brother another silence another sudden burst of speech from daisy there is one question i have not asked you she said impressively do you love him i answered that question in advance daisy a year ago when we were talking together on this spot just as we are talking to-night i told you then that your father was my first love and that he would be my last that is true now as it was a year ago it will be true to the end of my life poor uncle ambrose sighed daisy i have always pitied a man who marries a widow you know what guy darrell says in what will he do with it nothing so insipid as a heart warmed up and yet that very guy darrell marries a widow after all poor uncle ambrose but you don't dislike him do you mother dislike him no he is the one man i would choose for a friend and counsellor i respect and admire him for his fine character so free from unworthy ambitions so single-minded and for his intellect there is no one i would sooner have as my friend and companion no one whom i would rather obey in those things where women do obey their husbands said daisy making a wry face i am not over-fond of that word obedience and i hope if ever i marry my husband will not have the bad taste to pronounce it in my hearing dear dearest one with a sudden change to earnestness there are tears streaming down your cheeks are you unhappy mother no love only troubled and undecided i want to act for the best then i really think you ought to marry uncle ambrose he is so devoted to us both and he knows so much and it will be very nice to have him and cyril by our fireside on a winter evening mother and daughter kissed with tears and daisy sobbed out her emotions on her mother's breast and the end of this confidential talk was clara hatrell's promise to marry the man who adored her end of chapters six and seven